Amen. We are so excited to be back here, and I'm so excited to share with you the Word of God again. We are continuing our discipleship series, and we are just matriculating on down through Scripture and through the Word of God to discuss what what it is that God meant when when He exacted the disciple the discipleship process when He exacted the cost of being a disciple for all Christians. There's a little story about this little boy and I want to share with you. There's this little boy who walked into a prominent bike shop in his his little hometown and he walked in there, he was about nine or ten years old, and he saw the nicest, reddest, fastest little racing bike that you could ever imagine. And so he gets up there and he walks in and he just stares at that bike hanging on the wall and the owner saw him staring about 10 minutes or so and so he decided well let me just walk on over here and see if he wants me to get it down he said hey you know you want me to get the bike down for you little boy turned to him he said no sir no thank you I'm I'm okay owner thought okay that's that's a little strange he's a little boy so he's just probably just looking at it he didn't think too much of it well a week later that same little boy came back in and he stared at that bike again and owner's thinking, all right, okay, maybe he wants to really see it up close this time. So, again, he walks from behind his counter, and he walks up to the little boy, he says, hey, you want to see it this time? I can get it down, it's real easy. He said, no, sir, no, thank you. I'm okay, I appreciate it, though. He's like, okay, well, he's well-mannered, but he is a little strange, because he does not want to see this bike, so he didn't think anything of it. Now, that little boy came in the next week again, and... The owner thought, all right, you know, this is a little strange, but third time is the charm. He's going to buy this bike this time. And before he can even get the words out of his mouth, the little boy says, no, sir, no, thank you. I'm okay. And he's one, you know what? I'm sick of this little boy. I, I hope he doesn't come back because he obviously is just playing with me. He don't want to buy this bike. Well, six months or so passed by, and the owner hadn't really thought of the little boy too much, hadn't really crossed his mind. And in walks this little boy again, and the owner made up in his mind. He said, you know what? I'm not going to say a word to this little boy because I know he's not going to buy this bike. And so he doesn't say anything. Little boy looks at him and says, sir, aren't you going to get the bike down for me? He said, now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You came in here six months ago, three weeks in a row, and now you have the audacity to ask me for this bike. He said, what changed? What happened? What what happened in those six months? He said, well, sir, nothing changed. I just wasn't sure it was worth the price that you had for it. Now, he said, no, what? He said, what do you mean? It's, it's a good bike, and, it's, it, and it's, this is the right price? He said, yeah, but, you know, I had to think about what I would look when I was riding it. He said, I had to think about what other people would say about me on that bike, and I, I, had, to, I had to think about it. The little man thought, he said, man. It's a little wise boy. See, what that little boy was able to do was exact the full cost of what that bike would be. See, far too many times we look at the price tag of a thing and we just assess the cost based on the price tag that's attached to it. But the little boy, he knew that the cost of that bike was far more than just the price that was on it. See, that's just the initial cost of the bike, but it comes with a little bit more cost. And see, what that little boy was doing was all those times that he came up there, he was envisioning. He didn't need him to get it down. He knew it was a good looking bike. He said, and I knew knew the brand. It's probably a fast bike. 
But when I pay for it, will it be worth to me what it was to this man who had the price on it? See, many of us will buy cars and we think, well, if I move just enough money around, I can afford the note. Or if I, if I don't eat out as much, I can, I can pay that $4.75 a month. But what we fail to do is count up all the costs that are going to come with that car. See, the note is one thing. But can you afford the insurance and that car is going to need some gas and that car is going to need some maintenance and the oil needs to be changed and the brakes will go out. See, just looking at the price of it is not counting the cost. It is simply assessing the value that somebody else has for it. See, the cost is adding up and assessing everything it will cost us in addition to what we pay for it initially. That's what it means to count up the cost. And that takes us to our text today in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And the scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. You know... As I always want to do, I must offer some context to these passages of Scripture. So what you must understand is that when we get to this point in chapter 8, Jesus has already performed several miracles. Let's rifle them off, rifle them off. One miracle that he performed is he healed the man with leprosy. Now, just in case you don't understand the context of him healing a man with leprosy, that is equivalent to him healing somebody with a terminal illness that everybody is aware of. That is him healing somebody of AIDS, or that is him healing of somebody of terminal cancer. Because when you had leprosy, everyone knew where all the lepers were, and they hung out together. And Jesus tells him, he says, hey, but don't go tell anybody. Now, obviously... If people knew that a man was walking around with a terminal illness and all of a sudden didn't have one anymore, they would know something happened. And the book of Mark actually tells us that the man didn't obey Jesus at all. He went immediately and started telling everybody exactly what happened to him. The Bible records another miracle. Actually, probably one of the most amazing miracles. There's a Gentile centurion soldier who comes up to Jesus. And he's not asking for Jesus to heal himself, but he's asking on behalf of his employee and his friend who didn't even come along with Jesus. And so Jesus heals the man, not because of the faith of the man who was sick, but because of the faith of the man who came to him who was a Gentile. Not only was he a Gentile, but Jesus says, in all of Israel, I have not found faith like the faith that you have. 
This man shouldn't, shouldn't even have had faith in God, but he had more faith in God than he had seen anywhere else among his own people. Another miracle that he performed up before this chapter is he heals the mother-in-law of Peter. Just in case you didn't realize Peter was married, he heals his mother-in-law. So when we get to the text in verse 18, there are thousands of people who are aware that this Jesus guy is doing some amazing stuff. He is healing people. He is raising people from the dead. I need to follow him. Now, for many of us, especially as a new church plant, you would think that Jesus would love this excitement that people have. But he didn't. He didn't love that people were excited about what he could do. See, Jesus knew that the more exciting his ministry was the more illegitimate disciples he would have who were following him, not because they loved him, but they loved what he could do for them. That's what we get in verse 18. So the first thing that I want you to see is the scribe. So you probably don't know much about a scribe, but Matthew says that this scribe came to him and said that he would follow Jesus wherever he would go. Now, to the people who knew the position of the scribe, this might have been an admirable thing, but to Jesus it wasn't. Let me, let me get you to understand this. A scribe was not just some ho-hum position in Judaism. They were primarily responsible for in the interpretation of the Old Testament law. Knowing this, the people regarded their scripture interpretations of the Old Testament as law. Not just as law, but it was binding. Because of this, and because scribes took care of the scrolls on which the Bible was written, scribes held seats of honor in the synagogues. In fact, you've probably heard of the term the Sanhedrin in the Bible. That is the governing group of Jews that made all the decisions regarding the law. You had to be a scribe just to sit on the Sanhedrin. The scribes taught by citing the opinions of other people, various rabbis, rabbis and different authorities. So you remember there's a text in the Bible when they said he doesn't teach like the scribe referring to Jesus, but he teaches as one who has authority. That's because he did. And that was the one thing that the scribes lacked. They had a prominent position in the eyes of all the people. They even served as civil lawyers. They were some of the most well-regarded people in the community. And so what it will appear to you on the surface is that this man is willing to leave all of that for discipleship. See, that's because we have an understanding and we have the right perspective of what being a disciple means. And he looks at Jesus and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And what does Jesus do? Does he welcome him with open arms? No. Jesus qualifies what it means to follow him. 
He does not just accept the willingness of this man because Jesus is a discerner of the heart and the intentions of the heart. And so he looks at this man and he qualifies what it means to be a disciple. Perhaps Jesus knew that there was some sort of malicious motivation behind why this man wanted to follow him. See, this man didn't view leaving his position as a scribe as a step down. He said, well, wait a minute. This guy is teaching at a higher level with a higher authority with more followers. I'm taking a step up. So he thought that by following Jesus, he was going to scale the socioeconomic scale of hierarchy and take a step up from a scribe. So this is probably not some benevolent act. It's probably an act of selfishness. Because I want the position. I want the benefits. I want everything that Jesus has to offer. Not because it edifies the body of Christ. Not because it grows or glorifies God. But because I want my own glorification. Jesus knew this. See, this man saw Jesus heal a leper. He saw Jesus heal the centurion soldier's friend. He saw Jesus heal Peter's wife. He's mother-in-law. He's thinking, oh, I got to get on this because I don't have this as a scribe. This is a step up for me. But I want you to see that false humility is not enough for God. False humility is not enough for God. We all know those false humble people. Those are the to God be the glory people who say it but don't mean it. Those are the people who are convincing you that they're doing this. And it's just the Lord moving through me but I actually want you to glorify me. That was this guy. Notice. Jesus did not do what many of us do in churches today. He did not demonstrate easy believism to this man, which means he did not welcome him because of his willingness. He qualified what discipleship meant. And he said, if you are unable to meet these parameters, don't even consider attempting to think about trying to be a disciple. See, easy believism is this idea that all you have to do is raise your hand and God has forgiven you. But it doesn't talk about anything that God requires for you to be a disciple. See, we are in hyper grace. What does that mean? That means do we continue in sin knowing that grace will abide? Uh, kind of. We neglect to read the fact that 1 John 3 says those who are born of God do not practice sin. Because that's too offensive to people. But if you don't look at it here and if you don't see that Jesus was offending people with the gospel then no wonder we don't believe it. Because the last thing we would ever want to do is offend good tithers in our church. But I don't care about good tithers. I care about good Christians. The second thing I want you to see is that discipleship 
Discipleship should be a rational response. It should be a rational response. I've been a part of many churches that it is not a rational response, but it is an emotional response. We do not respond to the gospel with our emotions. We respond to the gospel with our rationality. And Jesus wanted to make it as plain as possible. What often pains me today about Christianity is we are selling a bill of goods that Jesus never promised. And because of that, we are trying to get people to count up a cost that is selling salvation short. Because of that, we are devaluing, in essence, who Christ is. See, Jesus did not simply accept the willingness of this man. He did not just accept the excitement of this man. He did not just accept the zeal of this man apart from his heart. You get that? That means he did not care how excited that man was about what he could do if his heart had not been changed. He was not fit to be a disciple. He was not fit to be a Christian. Far too often we are allowing people who have not had a heart change to walk around as counterfeit Christians who look like the real thing but they aren't. Willingness is not enough to be considered a disciple of Christ. He doesn't care how willing you are. He does not care how willing you are. He only cares how able you are. And your ability does not even come from you. It comes from the righteousness he imputes into you. See that? That's why when people come and they're like, what can I do? What can I do? I want to do this and I want to do that. Has your heart been changed? Have you repented? By the way, in case you don't know, repentance is not asking for forgiveness over and over again. Repentance is saying I was going this way and I'm turning the direction of my life. Which, by the way, there is no repentance without salvation. You do not have enough power on your own apart from God to repent. If you did, there would be no need for salvation. That's why the Bible says believe and repent. But a lot of us think repent and believe and we'll never believe. And so what he wants to do is he want, he, we must be able to pick from two opposing views. So how does Jesus exact discipleship? He presents us this negative statement which says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now what I'm going to try to do, and bear with me because it will take some time, but I'm going to try to present this to you in a way that will make the most sense to you so that you can get it. And so when you read other portions of scripture, it will marry together and make so much sense to you. 
Most of, all, most of you all know this. In Matthew 6, Jesus tells the people to not be anxious about their lives. He says, do not be anxious about what you will drink, what you will eat, or what you will put on. Not only that, he says, but these are the things that all of the pagans seek. These are the things that the non-believers seek after. He then says, look at the birds of the air. They don't do anything. The birds of the air, they don't sow. They don't reap, yet the Father still feeds them. He then says that if you seek after the kingdom of God, please understand this. He is not saying that your wants will be met. If you read the Bible, he lists a list of needs, basic everyday needs. And he then presents a corollary truth that if you seek after me and my righteousness, it's not your wants that will be met, but it's your basic needs. That'll be men. But we see, he, he keeps talking about birds and he keeps talking about animals. What is he talking about? Let's try to see this parallel. Jesus tells these people that in order to be a follower of him, you cannot be overly concerned with the minimal temporal things here on earth. What are temporal things? They're often the things that we qualify as needs. We think that what we wear is a need. We think that what we drive is a need. We think that what we, where we live and what size our house is, we think that that is a real need. But what Jesus is saying is that they only distract us from our intended purpose. You are going to have to totally love God and seek after him with full assurance that if you don't know where it's coming from, that it will be provided. That's what a disciple does. So... Perhaps you petitioning God for two hours over something you already prayed for is not the best use of your time. Perhaps if you would petition God for God, I'm not telling you that he's going to give you a surplus of everything you need, but I will tell you that he'll give him him. He'll give you him. And there is nothing that will bring you more fulfillment than Christ himself. So when he is speaking to the scribe, he tells him these same animals are not only fed by God, but he provides them shelter. But you know what? I'm his own son and I don't even have shelter. He is treating them, he is treating them with, according to your standard, more favor than he's treating his own son. See, if you don't understand that it's not necessarily the most prosperous people that are the most favored, you would always walk around angry at God because of what you think he did for them and didn't do for you. But if it was the will of God that he would bruise his own son for his glory, maybe it's the will of God that you go without so that he'll be glorified in your life. Oh, man, I know that hurts. 
Because some of us have been waiting for our million. Some of us have been waiting for our debt-free plan. And I'm here to tell you that it may just not come. But if you would totally rely on God for everything you need, you will see that God will always provide. And I know for a fact that for every person that is in this room, God has always provided. I know that. And until you see that God meeting the need that you have as far as food, as far as clothing, is so much more a gift of grace and not an obligatory action. God didn't have to do that. God does not have to do that, but it's because of the grace of God that he does. See, what Jesus is saying is I cannot have people around me who are considered disciples who are concerned when I don't have shelter where they're going to sleep. I don't need people who are supposed to be spreading the gospel worried about where their next meal is coming from. I don't need people who are supposed to be Christians advancing the faith to be worried about what they have on. That only distracts you from the greatest mission, which is the great commission. That's what he's saying. How often do we as professing Christians bog our lives down with things that we should have already trusted God? Not realizing that the device of Satan is using prosperity preachers and teachers to tell us that the greatest favor in our life will happen here on earth to distract us from pursuing God and pursuing his favor. That one hurt me. I hope it hurt you as much as it hurt me. See, he needs people who, if they are unsure about where the money will come from, if they are unsure about where the meal will come from, where the clothes will come from, where the car will come from, where the shelter will come from, who will still seek after him with their whole heart. That is the gospel, all right? That is who he's looking for. He is not looking for people who are waiting on their promotion, who are waiting on their blessing. He is looking for those who are waiting on him. They that wait upon the Lord, he shall renew their strength. That doesn't mean that you're going to be prosperous if you just wait on him. When you are weak in these areas and when your waiting starts to kill you, He will strengthen you. And what he says is, if that isn't you, if that's not you, don't follow me. That's what he's telling them. That's what he's telling them. He says, if you cannot be that person, then don't even try to follow me. See, far too often... We are presenting people with a gospel that they have to go dumb to believe. That's the truth. If I have to go dumb 
to believe what you're telling me about Jesus, then perhaps you're not telling me the right thing because I should be able to make a rational decision to follow him. And I think if we presented the gospel in more of a rational way, we wouldn't have as many people who are counterfeit Christians professing a relationship in public that they do not have in private. See, Jesus' goal, in case you don't get this, his goal was not to include the counterfeits. His goal was to expose the counterfeits. That's what his goal was. So when people came to him and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. Oh, will you now? Do you know I don't have a place to live? Will you follow that? Do you know I'm going to hang on a cross? Will you follow that? Do you know they're going to call me Satan? Will you follow that? You're probably going to be killed too. Will you follow that? And when people understood what the gospel really was, they were, in a, they were then able to make a decision. You know what? I ain't willing to pay that cost. I might be able to afford the initial payment, but I can't pay the rest of the cost. So you know what? I'm going to make me this good rational decision to not follow you. Or to follow you. See, we have to have the same exclusivity with the gospel so that there are not professing Christians but not practicing Christians in our churches. Because what that does is it only inhibits the purposes of God in the church because we're always having to navigate through who's not really a Christian. Listen, even if we were as exclusive as Jesus was with the gospel, the Bible says, but there's still going to be people who are going to grow up as tares along with the wheat that we will never be able to scope out. And it's only Jesus who's going to be able to perform his divine separation. And even though they went to church with us, they sung with us, they served with us, they tied with us, they were never one of us. But what pains me is that I feel like we are cultivating that atmosphere for non-Christians to come in and be comfortable. Now, seeing this, the Bible doesn't say what happened to this man. But I think we can take his silence as his answer. Will you follow me in knowing these conditions? You didn't say anything. That was his answer. I can't. I can't follow you. See, anytime you see silence in the Bible, woman, where are your accusers? They didn't say a word because they knew. See, silence has conviction. Third point, and I'm almost done. Discipleship comes at a great cost. It comes at a great cost. Bible says in another of the disciples said to me, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. I love when he says this. Aside from when Jesus told Peter to get thee behind me, Satan, this is probably the most biting response that Jesus ever gave to anybody. But let me clarify some things for you. First of all, 
This man's father was not dead. He wasn't dead. When he says, let me go bear my father, that is a terminology that means, let me go back home. Let me wait for my father to die. Let me collect my inheritance and then I'll come back and follow you. That man's father was probably not even sick. But what he's saying is, he's saying, I'm going to wait until I get my life perfectly in order. I'm going to wait until my life is all together. I'm going to wait until I'm financially stable enough. And then, Jesus, I'm coming to follow you. But the problem is, is that he thought that if he had money, his life would be perfectly secure enough to follow Jesus. But what he failed to realize, it wasn't until he followed Jesus that his life and his eternity would be perfectly secure. And if there are people in this room, let me just clarify this. If you're waiting for the perfect moment to give your life to Christ, keep waiting. It will never happen. You will never be in a perfect condition to give your life to Christ. Unless you are wallowing more and more in sin, then you are just apt for the gospel. Other than that, you will never be in perfect conditions to give your life to Christ. In fact, the more perfect your life becomes, the less likely it is that you're going to actually give your life to him. That's the reality. Jesus almost, when he says this, Jesus almost totally disregards his statements and he reiterates to him, yeah, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their, their own dead. Which he's saying, leave those who are spiritually dead, let them take care of their own dead. But you need to follow me. Again, as he did before, he exacts what it means to be a disciple. And he does not care how it comes across to other people. A disciple must be willing to totally disregard their socioeconomic comfort in order to be followers of Christ. They must be willing to disregard their livelihood for their relationship with Jesus. Now, it's a rhetorical question. Do you think this man became a follower of Christ? You think he did? I think so. Why do I think so? All you got to do is look at the Bible. For all the people who were here when I was preaching the series on the word of God and how intentional the word of God is, look at, look at how the Bible describes the scribe. What does it call him? It calls him a scribe. What does it call this man? Another of the disciples. Hmm. The scribe stayed a scribe because he rejected the truth. But this man heard the truth. And it pained him that Jesus revealed his own heart to him. But him revealing his own heart to him is inevitably what saved him and caused him to become a disciple. See, because Jesus told him the truth and he did not try to mask what discipleship was, that man was able to make a decision based on. Off of what was said to him, he said, you know what? You're right. You just told a truth about me. And instead of running from the truth, he ran to the truth. And he became a disciple because he was able to make a decision based on actual facts about Christ and not things that we have made up about him to make him look more appealing to people. And so if you are in this room... Don't be like the scribe. 
He had a zeal for God. He had a willingness for God. He had a willingness to follow God, to follow Christ. But his heart had not been changed. Because his heart hadn't been changed, he wasn't a real disciple. There are probably people in this room, I pray to God there aren't, who maybe you have tried to make a decision for Christ based on bad information. This is the gospel, okay? Your Christianity, I I feel like I say this every week, but I, I feel like I need to. Your Christianity is not about what you get. It is about what you give up. Yeah, you get salvation. Everybody wants salvation. No one wants to spend eternity, eternity in hell. Nobody. Nobody wants to spend eternity in hell. But it's about what you give up. It's not about what you gain. And there are people in the room who are disingenuous about their relationship with God because they haven't gained what all those other preachers told you you would gain when you gave your life to Christ. And that's why I use that terminology very intentionally. Gave your life to Christ. You gave it to him. Which means, God, no matter how successful I was with it here, only you are worthy enough and sovereign enough to put this life in the Lamb's book of life. Only you can do that. This man that made the decision for Christ, If you look at it, and I'm closing, he didn't have to go dumb to make a decision for Christ. He did not have to go dumb. All he had to do was look at the facts that were presented to him and make a real decision. And that's why the Bible called him a disciple, because he was a real disciple. He wasn't a counterfeit. There was a... um, There was a hen and a pig. This is a joke, story joke. There was a hen and a pig, and they approached the church. And when they approached the church, it had the advertised sermon topic on it, which was, what can we do to help the poor? Immediately, the hen thought of a great idea and suggested, maybe we should feed them bacon and eggs. And the pig said, you know what? That's a great idea. We should feed them bacon. 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 Wait, 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 wait. No, we can't, we can't feed them bacon and eggs. The hen said, well, why not? I think it's a great idea. He said, yeah, but for you, it's just a contribution. For me, it requires a total commitment. That's the gospel. For all of us in here. It requires a total commitment. And when I look up at Jesus on the cross, I have to see myself on the cross. Daily. Crucified. Daily. Mortifying my flesh. Daily. As Paul said, reckoning myself to be dead though dead in my flesh dead in who I am dead in my livelihood 
I'll be made alive in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.